Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast where we're reclaiming half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we have for you an interview with Pung Shepherd, the author of The Book of M. Hi, Kendra. Hi, Autumn. Oh my goodness, this book. You know, I feel like that's typically how most of our interviews start out. This is a true story. This is a true story. But this one, for real. Okay, so just a little bit of context. Um, This is a post-apocalyptic story, but not your basic post-apocalyptic story. (laughs) And it's the first time. I mean, we read so many books. And this is the first book in maybe a year where I got to the ending. And when they revealed the twist, I, I gasped out loud. Like... I was shocked at what happened at the end, and the payoff was incredible. So this is like so good. It is. It is very good, and I love how it's not just one thing. And sometimes I feel like authors feel very constrained by genres. Hear the air quotes a little there. Um, <laughs> and so this is a post-apocalyptic story, but it has some elements of a little bit thriller there. There's a love story. There's like a travel narrative. It's like There's a quest all- too. Yeah, there's all sorts of things going on in this book, and it just works. It's so good, and the scope is amazing, and anyway, so it's just a really fantastic book. So, without further ado, here is our interview with Pung Shepherd. So, we're so excited to have you on the podcast today, Pung. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, thank you so much for having me. We were really excited to read your book. Um, I personally love kind of dystopian, post-apocalyptic kind of fiction. And Kendra read it first and was like, you need to read this book. It's totally in your wheelhouse. And it really was. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I'm, I'm so glad that you guys enjoyed it. So for our listeners who haven't yet read The Book of M, would you like to tell them a little bit about what it's about? Sure. Well, I would say The Book of M is a little bit of sci-fi fantasy, a little bit dystopian, and a little bit post-apocalyptic, but at its heart, it's really a love story when it all comes down to it. And it's set in the near future, and it follows a mysterious phenomenon that's causing people's shadows to disappear all over the world with kind of like terrifying effects. Um, Because if you lose your shadow, you gain almost like magical abilities, but at the cost of one of your memories every time you use that new power and that kind of plunges the world into chaos. And the story itself follows a husband and wife named Ori and Max who have survived for about two years by hiding until at the very beginning of the book, Max's shadow also disappears and they have to decide if they're going to keep hiding or if they're going to go out into this very new and changed world that they don't recognize in the hope of finding some way to save her. I think that's a great summary to say that it is like dystopian plus sci-fi plus love story plus everything (laughs) else, because it really was like a really nice blend of lots of kinds of things. I didn't feel like it was like one type of thing, like overwhelming. Yeah. It, I don't know if that's just kind of from my own reading experience. I didn't really set out thinking like, okay, this book is going to be a sci-fi or like this book is going to be a dystopian. I just started kind of writing the things that I love to read. And I think they all just, it just became a mashup of just everything that I love in books that I've read. On some of the other interviews or in Q&As that I've read with you that you've mentioned that the Book of M is inspired by uh, Zero Shadow Day in India. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and how that 
kind of holiday or day that is celebrated there turned into your novel? Yes. Yeah, so it's actually, well, first of all, what I want to say about it is that it's a real actual day. Uh, and I'm not sure. I mean, I hope that when people read the book, they're kind of inspired to Google it or something and see that it's a real day. But actually, in our real non-magical world, every year over in India on a specific day, if you're outside, your shadow will disappear for a couple minutes. And it's just the like the coolest, most, I mean, it's it seems like magic kind of in our real world. Uh, but I actually didn't know about it when I started writing. I was trying to write the book for, oh, I think months. And I just kept redoing the beginning over and over because I had this idea that I wanted people's shadows to like disappear or to get up and walk away from them or do something really weird. But I didn't have a way in, like something from the real world to kind of latch onto to make it like that much more believable. Right. Uh, and so I just, I scrapped what I had, which was so painful. <laughs> um, and I just started researching um, everything I could find about shadows in our real world, like, you know, other culture stories or their arts or their folktales and stuff like that. And I was just on Google and I found zero shadow day. I mean, it was just so cool. You know, I just knew that was, that was how I was going to start the book. That was the way in. That is really cool. And I did end up Googling it and the pictures are surreal. Just They are, yeah. But, but I'd never heard of it before reading this book. But the way you described it, I totally caught on to the fact that it was like a real thing or a real like event that actually happened. But I don't know I don't know why I've never heard of it before. You would think something that amazing and monumental would have made it onto the internet somewhere. Oh, I know. Yeah, I, I kind of can't. I mean, nowadays, now that Twitter's kind of started, there are a couple of people on Twitter that will tweet photos of themselves losing their shadows in those moments. But it's still like a really hard thing to find, actually, which is so surprising because it is so, so awesome. We, we live in a region where the solar eclipse happened last year. And even that was weird because the shadows changed shape. And it was really oh, strange. Yeah, like the they went from like being round to being like crescent shaped. And it was really this really weird thing that happened, um, which is kind of a similar situation. Like you, it's a shadow is the kind of thing that's so static. And then when it changes, it's just really eerie. <laughs> like it's just a strange yeah. experience. Yeah. So that's really cool. Um, it seems like there are a lot more people, or it seems like there was a time when like these kind of dystopian stories had a heyday and then it kind of faded away. And now they seem to kind of having a renaissance again. Were there any stories that you were other stories that you were inspired by in writing this book? Or did you feel like you had to try to, I don't know, maybe like hide from the other stories or kind of get out of their shadow as it were, as you were writing it? Um, well, I definitely hid from the, really famous ones that I knew. Like I did not read station 11 until after my book was sold. And I didn't read the broken earth series by NK Jemison until mm-hmm. I think I, I was at least done with the, with the draft uh, because I was really worried that that would influence me. Um, and, and they were so big kind of in the, the generation before there was the, the dip in that genre. But I did read one, I think one of the biggest influences, there's a book from, I think the 1970s, it's an Ursula K. Le Guin book called The Lake of Heaven. And it's a sort of magical apocalypse book. And I read that when I was probably, I don't know, 15 or 16. And it's one of my favorite books. And I think that, I mean, there was probably no getting away from that being an influence because it was so just wonderful and inspiring. And it's, I've kept it with me this whole time. And they're just such a rich foundation of these stories that have come by and they're all different. And that's one of the things that I loved about your book was that even though 
I knew of all the other stories. Yours seemed fresh and new and, and different. And I think one of those things is how you combine this, this uh, almost like the trope of the illness that spreads across the world with the shadows disappearing with these magical elements that if, you know, they use this magic or power that they have, they lose their memory. And you see that throughout the beginning, but how did you approach world building this combination of these magical powers that these people can have, plus the idea of an illness spreading across the world and and people losing their memories in that way? Uh, Well, I think the spreading part of it is just such an ingrained part of the post-apocalyptic genre or the apocalyptic genre that it would feel sort of like not true without it, you know? And so I knew I needed a thing that was going to first happen to one person and then three more people and then a hundred people. And then it was, you know, it was really going to go from there. The way that the magic works, it sort of, I think it kind of takes a cue from something like Alzheimer's or dementia, because when you are a person who's losing their memory in little bits at first, because it's usually not just everything is wiped, you know, it's, it's like little pieces at first, but you have the majority of your, of your memory still intact. And I think those holes are really scary and they're very, you know, unnatural because it's, it's not, you know, it is not natural to suddenly not be able to remember where you live or what your wife's name is. And so in a lot of those real life situations, when I think a person does forget something, rather than just letting the hole stay there, they try to fill it in with their next best guess, which is how, you know, you might end up being called your son's name instead of your name or you drive to a house that you used to own, but not the one that you currently live in or something like that. And so the magic kind of came out of that where I was thinking these people that don't have their shadows, they are starting to lose pieces of their memories. And they're obviously very terrified, even as they're really enthralled with the power they have, eventually they, the price is catching up to them and it's really scary And so what would happen is when you realize you forgot something, you would very naturally try to fill it in with your next best guess. But since you have magic, your next best guess kind of manifests in the real world and changes reality to match that guess. And then things get more and more corrupted from there. I did think when I was reading the book, I was wondering if you had drawn from research on people with dementia who'd lost their memories or even one of the characters in his the book loses his memory from an auto accident. Like how much did you research into like those kinds of cases as part of developing the symptoms and the feelings of your characters? Uh, I definitely had to do a little bit more research for the character that gets amnesia from a car accident because I wanted to make sure that I described that in a medically accurate way. Cause I wasn't mm-hmm. really sure he's a special case. He doesn't remember pretty much anything about his personal life once he wakes up, so like he, he doesn't know his mother's name. He doesn't remember where he lived, what his job was, even what his own name is. But he still remembers how to do other things like talk or walk or put his clothes on. And that's, that is really how it works in some cases. But I had to do a lot of research to make sure that I was, you know, accurate on that. And then I just kind of drew from just friends or family that I know who have, you know, experienced a family member who's gotten Alzheimer's or dementia, but I wanted to keep that in a much more emotional way when I was writing about it. So I didn't do a lot of actual scientific research on that. That makes sense. In addition to the character we've just mentioned, who 
is called The Amnesiac. The book is narrated from a couple different viewpoints. One is Max, who Kendra wants to talk about later, so I'm going to save that for Max, uh, for Kendra. Um, and then Ori <laughs> is another narrator. And so, like, we have these three different perspectives, but they all have very distinct voices. Um, what was kind of your process for maintaining the distinction between those voices and all three of these characters have very different experiences that they're kind of working through that actually I felt like matched their character voice really well. Um, well, I, that's a good question, actually. I, it was not a thing I thought about consciously, so I'm really glad to hear that they each kind of have their own <laughs> unique voice. But I think maybe what helped was that I wrote most of them in their own chunks, you know, like I would, okay. I would go for a, like a hundred pages of Ori and then I would go back in and layer in like a hundred pages of Nas, who's one of the other characters. You know, when you're with that one character for so long and you're not jumping out every 15 pages, I think it makes it easier. And then I could tighten everything up in revision. I would write huge chunks of each character until I kind of hit a wall and then I would jump to someone else. I really love the sound of that process and it definitely makes sense because each of the voices is distinct, as Autumn was saying, and especially I did the book on audio. I listened to audio, and each uh, narrator has their own, like, narrator. I, I, I know they, there's a guy and a girl, and they switch, and so I'm sure there's some overlap there because there are several viewpoint characters, but um, I think on audio you could definitely hear the distinction in the voices, and that was really neat to hear as well. When they had first started talking about the audiobook, I have I have some input, but, you know, they, they obviously run the whole show there. And one of the things that I had really wanted was if one narrator could read Ori Nas and the Amnesiac, which are those three perspectives, and then a different narrator to read Max. And, but I hadn't even gotten to tell them that yet. And then they emailed me and said, hey, so we were thinking it would be really cool if one narrator read the other three characters and then we had a second narrator read Max. And it was, it was really neat to have them be on the same wavelength like that and have them also see it. And, um, and the narrators are both just, they're so amazing. They are, and I have to say, Max was my favorite perspective, pr- probably because the narrator of her voice was just so amazing. And she's also in this kind of like new epistolary type form where she's recording her voice for Ori. And so you get this just, I, I felt like it was such an old style, but in a new format because it's the end of the world kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just found that just Oh, it's just so enjoyable. And her voice, as she's losing, you know, she lost her shadow, so she's losing her memory. So her voice changes over the course of time. And she notices some gaps and different things. And did you find her perspective particularly challenging because she was losing her memory and she couldn't remember certain parts of the world around her? Um, I did a little bit. I had to be really careful to not let her say something later that she shouldn't remember anymore. And that was kind of tricky, especially in revision. Uh, But I think it really helped that her perspective is in first person because it allowed me to write it much more emotionally and less kind of, you know, objectively, because if it's in third, there's a distance there. And it would have been hard, I think, to narrate that and not not be required to explain some things, but when you're just kind of in her head with her and they're her own words, it, I think it made me closer to her and it made it easier to write. We have talked about like the more sci-fi or apocalyptic aspects of this book, but as you mentioned in your intro, this is also a love story in a very s- surprising sort of way. It's not just like one either. Um, there's like 
kind of a love triangle, but then there's also like other couples in the book. What mm-hmm. made you decide to like bring in the the love story aspect of it and into this narrative? Well, I actually didn't know that was going to happen at first. I was just mostly really obsessed with the idea of writing about the shadows and the memory and how that would affect kind of the characters as individual people. But the further I got into the story, it was actually really hard to write about memory without touching on love or write about love without touching on memory because they're just so, you know, those two things are so closely linked. And without me really even doing it on purpose in the story, I realized that most of the time when something magical about a memory was occurring, I had thought it would be about those characters trying to figure their way out of an obstacle or gain some kind of advantage, but it tended to be that whenever they were willing to give up a memory, it was because they were trying to save somebody they loved. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah. And, and it was, even when the memory that they would give up might be the memory of how it, they tied themselves to that person in the first place, because the love is just so important. And that kind of led me to a question of, could you, could you still love without your memories or the opposite? Could your memories, alone be the thing that keeps your love alive, even if nothing else was left. That I think it, that, that concept just grew bigger and bigger as I was writing it until I realized like, oh, this actually is a love story. This is what I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it adds, it definitely adds a layer of realism and emotional connection to the story because by the time I got to the end, I was totally pulling for certain characters and heartbroken <laughs> over what happened to other ones. Like, devastated over what happened to other couples in the book (laughs) yeah I really liked that added layer on it as well and I think what you're saying too about like the what would how would we be without our memories was a really fascinating question that I didn't expect myself to ask at the beginning of the book but by the end of the book I found myself thinking like oh well what are my memories and what would happen (laughs) if they were contained in my shadow or something like that so it really was thought-provoking too yeah definitely and I read this book alongside another book, uh, The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. And it's also about memory and honoring the memory of those who have passed and how you can, you can honor that, but also how our memories make us who we are. And her book is a like historical kind of, um, you know, 1980s in the AIDS crisis. And your book was this, you know, end of the world kind of story, but they were both about memory. And so I think your book asked so many deep philosophical questions about memory, about, you know, what makes us who we are and who are we without or with our memories. And also the malleability of of memories, the, the way that our memories can change and how we can spin our memories like, oh, well, that now we look back at that on a more positive. Well, initially that might have been more negative. And I felt like the two books worked really together and made me think a lot more about the book of M in a certain way. Uh, Did you know that you were going to be asking such deep questions when you started the book or was it just something that came out of your storytelling? Oh yeah, gosh, I did not plan any of that. (laughs) I had just kind of set out to write what I thought was going to be a sort of eerie adventure. Um, But I think that's always the way when you get started, you just have this really cool premise and maybe some characters. And then as you, get to know those characters as like real human beings and you learn their interior life and like who they love and what they care about. All of that just kind of starts to build. I get, it might be a little bit different, I guess, if you're writing something historical because then there's certain beats you have to hit or you're working with real people who had, you know, other real people that they 
they cared about or that they were um, fighting against. But I think a lot of times when you're doing a story like this that's completely invented, it's very fun. It's very, it's, well, I would say it's scary, but it's also really fun to kind of see where it goes because you're, you're never quite sure exactly where it's going to go. Even if you think you know, you still don't know. All told, how long did it take you from first draft to finishing the book? Once I, well, once I kind of hit upon the zero shadow day thing and I started writing like really with a fury, it's, I think it was about nine or 10 months to finish the first draft. And then I revised it very heavily for about six months. Oh, wow. That seems pretty fast for as complex as the book is. I'm impressed. I don't know. I mean, uh, it was a lot of hours every day. I mean, the nine hours of first drafting it was a lot of hours. Um, mm-hmm. But I was just so, uh, I don't know. I, yeah, I Because also, since it was my first book, I wasn't writing it for anyone else. And I didn't have deadlines or editor expectations or anything like that. And so I was really just so consumed with the world and didn't care about like any of the business side of it or anything like that so Mm -hmm. it was really I was very immersed that's really cool yeah it was nice that you had that flexibility that you could just go where it took you rather than having you know something hanging over your head like deadlines or something like that yeah no it really it really is sometimes super different than you originally kind of envisioned and this this one was too I thought that this was going to be a very quiet tight almost like domestic drama between just two people, perhaps even like trapped in one place and not going anywhere. And I was like, this will be great. It's two characters, very short book, not a, not a lot of changes of settings. And then like 150,000 words later and like, you know, I don't know, 30 characters and a bunch of different cities. And this is what I ended up with. So yeah, very different than what I thought it was going to be. One question I did want to ask, and this is totally for selfish reasons that I'm asking this question. I was interested in the cities that you chose to set the different encounters in. And New Orleans in particular plays a huge role in this book for a lot of reasons. We will not get into just read the book. Why? (laughs) Like, I did wonder, like, you know, you don't see a lot of books that aren't like Southern Gothic stories that include a city like New Orleans. Was there a specific reason, like, why why you chose that city as like to be this very important city in the narrative? Yeah, I, well, there was first a logistical reason because I had set the beginning of the book in the Washington DC area. And so I knew that wherever they ended up near the end, it had to be like reasonably possible that they could get there in a kind of post-apocalyptic environment. So by walking or on horse or something like that. But once I kind of had my, you know, my radius that I could work within, I was just looking at the map. I took a map out and I kind of circled the area and I was looking at the map and New Orleans was within that. And it just seemed like it was kind of inevitable. Like I I really, as soon as I realized that, I just thought it can't really be any other place because I knew that I needed a place that was kind of, it had to be strong enough and resilient enough to have survived something so awful, you know, mm-hmm. kind of the upheaval of the world, but it also had to be vibrant enough to be able to support and sustain the magic that was also happening. And, uh, you know, New Orleans just, it has such a long, rich history and a really unique culture. And it, it is a city that is really resilient and hopeful. And it just felt, I don't know, it just felt so right. So that, that's how that ended up happening. Well, we are both in the South, and so we are always looking for more books set in the South, and 
that was great to see. And just a, not in even like a, I don't know, waving the Southern flag kind of way, but more in a just, this is, <laughs> this is natural. This is just where the book is set and it's going through. And I just, I, I loved it. I love the setting. And I was able to be like, oh, I know where that is on these different places they were going. So. And the characters and the setting, it's all just perfect. Like everything about it is just like <laughs> perfect. So. Well, thank you. We're just going to be your cheerleaders now. So. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we could keep talking about your book for a very long time, especially if we went uh, non-spoilers, but we won't do that today. Uh, <laughs> but before we let you go, we did want to ask you, uh, are there any women writers that you've been reading lately or that maybe went around this book or any women writers that you would like to recommend to our listeners? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, do we have another hour? <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Um, okay. Okay. Now I'll, t- I'll try to go with stuff. So what have I read really recently? Well, I'm actually in the middle of the third book of the Broken Earth series by N.K. Jemison. Yes. The whole series is just amazing. I think she just won the Hugo for the third time uh, in a row, which is a huge um, science fiction fantasy award. And so she's won it for each of the books in each of the years. So she's been the winner for three consecutive years now, um, which is just incredible. I don't think anyone else has ever done that. And we've the books been calling are fantastic. It, yes, we've been calling it internally uh, the Triple Crown. Yes, and the books are just so, yeah. So I'm reading that, um, and I also have been obsessed with The Song of Achilles by, um, I think it's Madeline Miller. Yes. It's just, it is so beautiful. Yeah, I, it's, I think it's one of the best books I've ever read. Well, I love her, and I'm kind of obsessed with Greek mythology. And so we were at the Decatur Book Festival, and I had Autumn come with me to the panel with Madeline Miller, and I think I've sold Autumn on it. So Yes, you sold me. <laughs> <laughs> that book is in my yeah, very I, near future. Oh, well, good. I, I highly recommend it. It's so, um, it's different than a lot of the other stuff that I read because it's, you know, it's a retelling of Greek mythology. It's not science fiction fantasy, but I, I was just so taken with it. It was just so beautiful. And I definitely feel there's a connection between mythology in general and the love of fantasy, because I think you can see that in writers like uh, Neil Gaiman and I don't write as much Ursula Le Guin, but it definitely inspired by, and I think there's just a heritage thing there. So I think it makes sense that that's something you need. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's definitely, yeah. Somewhere in the same family, kind of. Well, we know this is your debut novel and no pressure, but we did, we always like to ask if there's anything you're working on right now that you'd like to share with our listeners and yeah, or anything like that. Sure. I can't, I'm actually in the very early stages of the second novel. It's kind of, it's just in the make a mess phase. That's what I call it, right? Just make a big mess of stuff and kind of see like what sticks. So I'm still just like making a mess. It's a huge mess, um, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. And I think it'll be, it won't be post-apocalyptic, but it will still have kind of an element of weird or unexplainable in it. Well, sounds good to me. Uh, yeah, I'll say that sounds perfect. <laughs> well, we look forward to it. I hope you guys like it. In two years, it'll be, you know, one or two years. <laughs> <laughs> We'll try to wait patiently. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk to us about the book of M. We enjoyed reading it and we really enjoyed getting to talk to you about it as well. Well, thank you so much. I, I had a wonderful time talking about writing and books and reading with you guys too. Man, it was so good to get to talk to her about this book. I had so many questions when I finished it and I feel like some of them have been answered. 
Yes, there were just so many things I wanted to know. And so I was so happy that she was here to tell us about them and about, I love hearing about how the book kind of ran away with the idea and it became something totally different than she originally imagined. Yes, and we may or may not have asked her a few questions about the spoiler um, afterwards, yes. <laughs> but it's definitely a delightful book, and you can get a copy of Pong Shepard's book, The Book of M. It's out now from William Morrow. There's also an audiobook out if you want to do it on audio, which is actually really astounding. And you can find more about her on her website, PungShepherd.com, and on her Twitter and Instagram, at PungShepherd, and we will have links to that in our show notes so you can easily find more about her. And as for us, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at KD Winchester, me at Autumn Privet. You can also find us on ReadingWomenPodcast.com, where we have past episodes, author Q&As, and much, much more. So thank you all so much for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.